Welcome to the Twin Geeks 184. I'm Calvin here with Glass. Glass, how are you? I'm doing good. It's a rainy evening down here at Tacoma, but I'm doing well. Yeah, we've had some storms and had some thunder the last couple of days. Thunder and rain mixing in with mm -hmm. our fall weather. Um, I'm so glad you're joining us. Uh, Glass, you could find on Letterboxd at Blackner Magic. Um, anything else you want to plug, like Twitter or uh, where else could they? find you there are you oh you mean you mean x uh, on mean x, x? <laughs> whatever it's called this week. <laughs> yeah um i mean if anybody wants to follow me you can follow me on instagram and facebook as Coles davis and i'll be easy to find um i don't bite i like meeting new people and i have a lot of interests so and you brought one to us today i was so glad you said the godfather because that's just been like sitting there like that's a film every podcast must cover in its lifespan, right? It's a important American film about like the development of American cinema and where everything came from as far as crime films that we have today. Uh, why did you want to do uh, Godfather besides, you know, besides it, besides the great status it has? I think what has drawn me to Godfather is that if you take a step back and look at all three of the films, it operates as a full-on character study of one man, Michael Corleone. Mm. The Godfather deals with, as far as the family and establishing the mafia and their role in this America, the 1940s, 1950s, and it deals with organized crime and it deals with loyalty. It deals with violence. It deals with um, darkness, heartbreak, and it has a chance of dealing with love as well. But the the films mostly act as a way for us to get into the head of a Michael Corleone. And I love character studies. They're some of my favorite films to watch. I, I love seeing the way that a character can evolve or devolve over time. It's just fascinating to me. And the Godfather is just the, the best starting point for probably the greatest character arc we have seen in cinema history. I've had it where people always say online, maybe I'm very online with cinephiles, and they say, well, obviously, Citizen Kane is the greatest film ever made. But that's not what I heard growing up. What everyone said, like real people outside a cinephile bubble, they all said it was The Godfather. That's what I heard, and that's the impression everyone was doing. Um, you know, they weren't doing Rosebud in elementary school. They were <laughs> they were acting as though they were the Corleone family. And we were, you know, we were play acting Italians as as children. And um, it, it's just got that piece of America in it. Um, and I think for everything you say that it is about it as that and it has like the opposite shade of it. It could be about family and it could be about this man when he's separated from his family and what it's like as a character study. Um, it could be about uh, darkness, but it has lightness too in like equal effect. It's so stunning how it has uh, such like a, a pull, you know, it's like a polar opposite of anything that's on it. It, it has the other side of it covered too. Yes, the interesting thing I wanted to go back to Citizen Kane is that when Citizen Kane first came out, it wasn't really valued as a great film. It was actually kind of banished uh, yeah. in the film critic spaces, especially during that time, because it was a film that no one had ever saw before. The Godfather, I was doing some research and it was widely praised opening and you know everybody could immediately see that this is a new change that we were going as far as american cinema so it's interesting how 
how now people are saying Citizen Kane is the greatest, but I've heard people say that The Godfather is the greatest of all time. It's kind of like, which side are you on? It, it's kind of yeah. like a tit for tat, tomatoes, oranges. I mean, they're both great films, but I think The Godfather has something more to offer, um, especially since there are two sequels to it. So it's kind of a continuation of the same overall story that started in the first one. There's such a, a legacy there that they're both tied basically in, in some uh, circles. Whereas a uh, uh, Citizen Kane has first on the AFI list, Godfather's number two and mm -hmm. uh, in like public polls on MDIB or somewhere, the Godfather might be on everyone's top 10. Um, whereas Citizen Kane, you have to really, you know, if you're a film scholar, I think they do a lot to promote it from inside their hobby. But mm -hmm. uh, if I ask people in my family who aren't in film, film culture, which do they prefer? They watch Godfather all the time. That's, you know, I mean, that has a really stunning reputation and a cultural imprint that it, it kind of like reflects on everything we touch. Uh, it's really beautiful, like how far reaching the film is. Um at some point, it's so far reaching that when you watch it, it almost feels like a, a version of the parodies you watch or uh, when you hear the choreo, like how the family talks to each other, uh, how they um, uh, almost like how uh, Brando has like mothballs like in his mouth. He has like <laughs> cotton balls to look more bulldogish on screen, but also that affects his speech in ways that people imitate pretty often. Um do you feel that effect when you watch it as well? Like that you're viewing it through like a lens of now I've seen this reflected in all my culture. I think the most immediate impact I've seen deals with two of, of my favorite pieces of art ever made. Um, one being Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas in 1990 yeah. and the TV series The Sopranos from 1999 to 2007. I think that without The Godfather, you don't get those pieces of art because those pieces of art seem like they took their cues from this film. I mean, everything from the costume design, the cinematography, the way that it talk that it depicts the mob. I mean, you have to think about back in the early history of cinema, you know, we've always had films that dealt with crime. Uh, usually in the beginning, they use like you couldn't show the criminal winning at the end. You know, you couldn't yeah. show the criminal in a virtuous spot. You know, the criminal, it had to be a crime doesn't pay uh, type of message for all these films. And, you know, you start to go more into the 50s and 60s and you start to see more films that are tackling with the dimensions and complexity of people who are involved in the criminal life. And I think The Godfather kind of set a new benchmark for that subgenre of crime film. You know, it, it's not film. It's easy to it's easy to say that The Godfather could be a film that glorifies the mob life. You know, you see the guys with the nice suits, the nice cars, the big house. You know, it's clear that the Corleone family is a family of prestige. They have money. You know, they have these wonderful parties. They can do favors for any kind of people. And it seems like it's a world that anybody would want. So anybody would want that power. But what they show you is that what comes with that power is that you also have to deal with, you know, fighting to keep that power and whether that is you know going and interrogating people such as the film director you know mm -hmm. um 
going and trying to intimidate people into doing what you want and or having to kill certain people in order to further your ends or to keep the threat of violence coming towards your family and then also dealing with death in yourself. I think that anybody goes into a life of crime doesn't think it's going to be all daisies or easy yeah. or anything. I mean, you have to sacrifice something. Most of the outcome for anybody in this life is that either you go to jail or you die. And in this film, The Godfather, you see that while the Corleone family, they deal with this, it's not exactly the aspect of losing a life. It's about the psychological and mental anguish of living in this life. For instance, Marco Corleone, in the beginning, we see him, he's a, he's coming back from the war. He's a war hero. He wants to study to be a lawyer. And he doesn't want, he doesn't see himself fitting into the lifestyle of his brothers and his dad. But over time in the film, there are certain circumstances and events that happen that force him to become a part of life. And once he's a Picard, become, becomes a part of that life, he changes to a whole different person than what he was. As he shows up, even like from the, you know, scars of war, he shows up in a, like a state of anxiety. Everything happened to him around him at the wedding is like, startling to him that he knows he's entering this phase where now he uh enters from you know warfare to a new kind of warfare that's street level and uh <laughs> very much in the mob um and as the film progresses his face relaxes like the physical performance of pacino relaxes into like a uh almost more menacing calm he almost takes on what brando has just naturally like whatever innately that characteristic is that allows someone to slip into that role of leadership. He almost like relaxes into it, even as things escalate against him. Like, uh, yeah, famously, like the the bit with Butch and Carla, I think uh, at the end where she's coming and talking about the death of her husband and, and he's just so relaxed and the camera just focuses in on his face. It's, it's his lack of reaction and, you know, um, almost just an ability to shield yourself uh, for the um, safety of the family. Yeah, it, it seems that he takes something away from what from what he's seen with his father, Vito Corleone. Vito Corleone probably has. He is made of the same stuff. Michael's made of the same stuff as him. But Vito, it seems to be more open to compromises and more open to doing business with certain families and trying to find ways to get to a common ground. As we'll see from Michael, even in this film and in the current sequels, we'll see that he is a guy that is willing to do some terrible things in order to keep the power of the family. And this is something that you don't, you you wouldn't predict for him when you see him in the beginning of the film. Uh, he's a guy that carries himself with a lot of honor. But as you see over the film, things happen to him and he becomes almost like a silent monster. He's a guy that doesn't speak much, He, but he's very observant. As you notice, Pacino does a lot of things with his eyes in a lot of the scenes. It's not really what he says. It's the way that he looks at you and kind of like he's almost like staring through your soul in a yeah. sense. And, and that, that and those are the moments that kind of put this guy in a different light. You like he's not really coming in with brute force but you can tell that he's a dangerous man absolutely and you uh get that sense that he was born into that danger and he has to rise into that so whatever discomfort he has this movie seems to be about him negotiating that whereas uh, i think you mentioned the second film is a uh, my favorite of the trilogy it's so much about what he has to do to become that guy uh the consequences of trying to let the other families in 
and trying to negotiate. Um, uh, this one, though, has a, I think maybe the most remarkable opening and uh, wedding scene, certainly in movies. It's so bright and uh, so inviting. And I think I, that might be why people glorify it so much. They want that family for themselves. Um, I know even just like coming from a big family myself, like that's the warrant that I feel from the movie. It immediately pulls you in. Um, you know, even if you want out, it'll, it'll pull you back in, as they say. Uh, it's <laughs> it's so gorgeous, though, and it's so overlit. It's so, um, so much light coming off everything. And when the family's together in large group settings, the film is very bright. Um, but then it like shudders right away. You go in and you see the isolation of, of Vito Corleone just sitting there in his, his chair with his cat, you know, it's... <laughs> Uh, his his isolation is almost self-pain so the family can have that largeness and, and togetherness in it. Yeah, there's an aspect that I've picked up on this film and how it deals with masculinity. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in a sense, in society, it is often said that we see men as providers you know men are expected to come in and provide financial and emotional and not really emotional stability but mostly the financial stability for a household you know the woman she stays home she prepares the house she takes care of the kids she cooks and cleans the man is expected to as they say bring home the bacon and with Vito Corleone in the opening scene you can see that this is a man as you said with the use of the dark colors and everything contrasted with the light outside the reason why there's light outside is because of the darkness there are <laughs> there are things that have to be done in order for light to be outside in order for my family mm -hmm. to be able to have this extravagant wedding in order for my family to be able to live with this security and to be able to have this money things have to be done that most people wouldn't have it in their heart to do uh in the set in the part in part two, we get to see Vito's origin story and we get to see the things that he, he had to do to become the great Vito Corleone, mm -hmm. the much respected Don. And this is almost a future, this is almost a future foreboding for Michael Corleone. Like this is what you are expected to do. Mm -hmm. You are expected to come into the family business and uphold the Corleone name. You can't let what your father built go to tarnish you can't let it go to strays or the family is going to be in a much lower and uninfluential position than it was before and it's kind of having to build on what someone has brought before and that comes with a lot of pressure and a lot of I would say psychological um, negotiations with yourself you know, what are you willing, what are you willing to do in order to become this and do that? And do you have the heart to do it? And it's not really about you liking what you have to do, but it's something you have to do in order to provide. Yeah. There's a point where the only point where he does find any lightness where he's out in the daylight and he seems to experience the wealth of his family is with his new grandchild. And it's so much a success and succession story, but that moment the one time he seems to enjoy what he's built is his death scene it's uh, his one scene in the light when he's outside the room and he's like really enjoying the reaping like the benefits of what he's built is uh um the end for him but but it's also the one relief we get um so at least he gets to go out in the movie with that sense of he's accomplished something here he is here's his grandchild like it's another succession that's happening 
um, almost automatically. Like it's an implication already about that grandchild that, and what he's going to grow up to be that he was out in the field within. Um, and there's so much of that, as you say, the movie is so built around the legacy of like a patriarchy and what a family builds for itself and had to do uh, coming into America as Italian families, which were, you know, very much like organized into neighborhoods just by like force and, and uh, um, just opportunity was had to be like self-generated amongst themselves. And they had to like form their own family, like not quite a mafia, but uh, they had to make their own organizations to empower themselves. Yeah, I think the inspiration from this film comes from the fact that we are dealing with a story about immigrants. Mm. The Corleone family, they, uh, you know, Vito came here with nothing, literally nothing. All of his family had, and we go in, we'll go into this more in part two. For anyone who hasn't seen part two, I'm sorry, but there's a little bit of spoilers right here. But Vito Corleone's family, pretty much none of them survived. None of them survived. So Vito had to come and travel to New York, Ellis Island, all on his own with nothing. You know, no money, no support, just him by himself. And to see him to be able to come here with nothing, with no money, just to close on his back and to be able to build a criminal empire. And let's get it, let's not get it wrong. This is an empire built on bad deeds. Mm. But at the same time, it is still an empire. And it goes to show that this is what people think of the American dream. You know, coming here, coming to the United States and seeing all the opportunity and be able to make something good for yourself. But also, I feel that the mob was built as an antithesis to the American dream because the American dream was mostly closed off for anybody who was not white and who was not male for the most part. And Italian immigrants, they came here and they had to live in slums and they had to live in crowded conditions. And they were mostly baked into having to do these low these low wages jobs and having to struggle and scrap by in order to make it in America. So the mob was kind of created as a way for these families to be able to have something, to get a piece of the pie of the dream that they were closed out of. And that's where the aspect, the first quote of this film is, I believe in America. So mm -hmm. this film is essentially a retelling of the American dream, but from the Italian perspective the mob perspective not all italians but the italian mob itself the most american story is the story of the immigrant that's how america sets itself up but uh the cinema like this shows the realities of that how you would how you would have to negotiate the systems to be able to survive in that way because uh uh, the system itself is ugly and built on oppressions. And so like uh, the violence that it takes to get around that is almost a systemic violence. Like it's a necessity in some ways to respond to it, to be able to achieve generational wealth as a um, person of color or as an Italian or as someone entering from the outside. Uh, you, I mean, America rewards not following its rules. Yes. Um, I wanted to go back to the opening scene. The opening scene, the opening first 30 minutes, this whole wedding scene, mm -hmm. it is a masterclass in introducing characters. Yeah. I mean, you immediately get a sense of who, what, who and what kind of character we're going to be dealing with in the film just off of these first 30 minutes. You see Sonny. And you get already get the sense that Sonny, he's a hothead. He goes and he he's seeing the um agents, the police are taking light pictures of the license plates of cars that are there. He immediately goes and he like destroys a camera. 
that mm. already that it doesn't it there, there doesn't need a narration going over like you know Sonny, you know he was he was bad with his temper you know he would fly off the handle no it just shows you right in and there he's a hothead and then you see fredo and you see him and it's like fredo he's kind of like the guy who's like the black sheep you know he's mm. not he's a guy that was born into this but he's not really built for a life like this he doesn't really have any skills that Beto, his father, can see in him that will say, you know what, he should be next up to take over the family. He's kind of like a guy that is living off the prestige and the power that his family bestowed before he arrived here. And you see other characters. You see, you know, Michael's sister. You see the mother. You see the Johnny F um, Fontaine. You see, you see all these characters. You see even Luca Brasi rehearsing his speech and how he's going to thank the Vito Corleone for giving him the chance to work with his family. Like all of these little character moments do so much in just introducing each character and letting you know who they are immediately. And so many other films have taken that aspect of The Godfather's opening scene. One example would be. P, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights in 1997. Mm. There's an opening scene where you go into this disco club and you're meeting all of these characters, and that is a clear ripoff from The Godfather. <laughs> Any way you want to build an ensemble, this is the textbook. And uh, mm -hmm. most importantly, I think it's able to like balance that ensemble in such an interesting way, whereas uh, I mean, you kind of want to be overwhelmed. It is an overwhelming prospect to join someone's wedding that you don't know. To sit in on it and it's uh these people have so much color to their personality they're so uh lived in they they feel like of a complete unit like you you understand like who the family are by how each person operates even uh you know even this guy out there like uh rehearsing his script to bring in you know that <laughs> tells you the intimidation that even people like on the fringes inside the family feel just about bringing something about wishing someone to have a masculine child you have to you have to rehearse that because the stakes are so high uh and it, it even begins with such like an intimidating conversation it's like a three minute one shot just pulling back before we get to all this lightness and celebration and it it's so somber and as you say it's about the american dream and what it will take to achieve that and how we're going to have to go through uh, maybe some violent ends to get there but i think it sets the pacing so well that it's like this slow pullback until we see the figure and then uh, almost just silhouettes there. Um, it's not quite operating like on the length of a noir because it's not really about shadows. It's about people operating in like a shadowy room, but uh, it's a different kind of generational crime story too. It doesn't, it's not so narrowly about a detective. It's such an elevation on any of that. Yes. It like this film is close to three hours in length and yeah. you know we often talk about how there are so many long films these days and sometimes the films don't justify their length uh, uh they either get slower they either start dragging or there's a lot of filler that doesn't really make that doesn't add anything to the story this film's story is pre is precision it is straight precision like every scene every line of dialogue every little montage it adds to the overall story and it never drags never drags not for one second that's why when i rewatched it uh, you know a few months ago recently i said it was probably the best edited film of all time i mean honestly 
I could even tell that it was three hours. I just, mm. honestly, I even wanted to be more. I wanted to be more, you know, <laughs> I wanted to immediately go in and just pop in part two and just watch that. These films have a sense of knowing what to put in, what to leave out and how to keep the viewer interested in the different parts that are moving around the story. Cause we jump a lot, you know, we yeah. jump, we jump years, we jump through different scenes, we jump through different viewpoints, but everything feels congruent if everything feels like it is working together to create and meld a perfect engine of storytelling also like the jumping like it's achieved through such great location shooting location matters so much in this story mm -hmm. and location is also about what it is you know when you go back to italy and uh you know you come back like uh a lot of modern film is just like shot in georgia and it's good you know <laughs> like they're like uh shooting georgia will add the visual effects and you can never replicate what real places and real atmospheres are like without actually shooting from there. And this has so many memorable locations and and places and different vibes and themes. And uh, they all tell you so much about the characters in them, the spacing and blocking of the characters, how they're set up in a scene, how you coordinate people in a room together, who stands where, what uh, power dynamics they have, how they're tilted their body, <laughs> How do they approach the throne, right? It's like, it's all just every position of a person and a location tells you something about the story. Yeah, my favorite location of this film, there's a scene when Clemenza is about to take care of Frankie because he realizes that he's betraying the family and they end up driving through the city and they go towards this wheat field and just seeing the wind and the way that the wheat is responding to the wind, like it feels just so naturalistic. Like it feels like just such an empty but wide spanning place. And you don't, and it's hard to really get a sense of gravity to convey a sense of gravity, you know, when it comes to a film. I mean, oftentimes we take for granted, you know, we get these beautiful locations in the film, but you don't get a sense of the gravity of being in a location. But with The Godfather, it, it, it really is putting you in these places and it's feeling like you're like a fly on the wall, you know, that in a sense you are in the background and you're just listening to these people talk and have conversations and figuring out ways of how to deal with, you know, events that come up and dealing with business and dealing with family and dealing with how to take care of things that are going on with them or with other people. There is a, a subtext of just realism with this film. And it's hard to really get that across, you know, without understanding, you know, the, the pieces behind the film, such as Francis Ford Coppola, being, him being able to adapt this book from Mario Puzo. And then you have the cinematographer, then you have the score, and then you have the attention to detail of not just treating this like a, a, a simple mob story, but treating this like a epic drama. Like the 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 ambition of the film doesn't overstate itself. It's not a film that's like, yes, we're trying to make you feel something. We're trying to make yeah. this big. It already is big. It just, just is. By, yeah. Yeah. Just by the normal, just by the normal everyday things we are seeing on the screen. You could say, well, some people would say they would make the argument you can't make a film like that anymore. But my counter argument was that you couldn't make the film then. Um, every <laughs> institution in American film fought against the existence of The Godfather. That is such a rebellious thing to have made in 1972 that uh, 
that generation was just beginning what we now consider that you know like uh um it's all described in like easy rider raging bull like the book of the 1970s how it de developed from like 1969 and pushing limitations and uh the outcomes of the hippie generation and and seeing the failure of those american dreams which were about peace and uh this almost like um relenting back to violence and understanding that you know the dream wasn't so sacred after all that uh that america was still going to win against the peace and love generation and the free sex and the um you know radicalization and um freedom of oppression and women's like voting rights and everything that came along was just like pushing toward this more open idea of what America could be. Um, and that's like that whole phase that came from like this stock of filmmaker, which was like, a, you know, a Chinatown, The Godfather, um, a Taxi Driver, Last Picture Show, like uh, Bogdanovich, Scorsese, you know, um, uh, even, you know, every everything that kind of informed what independent direction could be was kind of set up at this time. Um, originally but Robert Evans just wanted this to be about the hippies like they were still holding on to that at the production <laughs> level like he thought Robert Redford should lead the movie you know it was going to be a very typical American movie if uh, Coppola relented at any point uh, but Coppola had the the great honor I think of the partnership with Puzza who, who really fought for his own vision um, so having that partner um, they also didn't even want Coppola to direct you know Mm. Um, he wasn't he wasn't uh the guy he became after the godfather that changed everything for him and you know some would say like coppola you know it was like a very short arc of like 10 years where he was productively making like great movies and had his american zoetrope which is like a result of the studio system's failings and like empowering directors to create new things but um i think that also had its own natural end just because of uh, the forces of those powers and how movies are made and what happens if you fail at an independent level. Yeah, the studio heads are always the gatekeepers, it seems, to a creative artist's real vision. They are always the obstacles that you have to jump over in order to get what you want. Um, who knows? I mean, especially if Francis Ford Coppola was behind the Retrospective. I mean, I don't think The Godfather would really. We wouldn't even be talking about this film no. right now. And the one good thing about films like this is they they are a mirror of what is going on in society at the time. I think any great piece of art feeds itself off of what the real world is offering, and it channels that through its imagination and through its structure in order to convey those real world themes without really pointing a finger towards it. Uh, I have a common saying that, you know, when I'm talking with friends or talking with people about films, I tell them like, you know, you should really pay attention to the films you're watching, you know, especially films, you know, that are like dramas or that are a reflection of what's going on in society. Really pay attention to those films because they are teaching you something. And, mm. you know, you don't want to miss out in everything. And, you know, a film like The Godfather not only talks about the way that the American dream has kind of not re really unveiled itself for many people, but it also talks about capitalism in a sense. I mean, in the film, Vito Corleone's family, the Corleone family has built their their business off of olive oil. You know, they're in the olive oil business and they are the best at it. But now you have these new guys coming in and they see that there is more money in 
trafficking drugs. But Vito Corleone doesn't want to touch drugs because that's not part of his personal brand. He doesn't believe, he doesn't really believe in the sense of purveying poison out to his own people or to other people. But you can see that the era is starting to change in the film. Olive oil is becoming a product that no one really believes in anymore, that no one, mm -hmm. no one's really demanding for. Drugs is where the new frontier of money-making is going to be at for the mob. And Vito is the last guy who is standing away from, from being a, a part of it. But he has no choice because all of these different forces are coming in there and squeezing him out. And it results in him being assassinated. And it results in his family being in constant danger unless they give in and finally decide to start selling drugs because the other head of the mob families are in support of that. They don't want to be in the olive oil business anymore. So it's tell it's teaching you about that, you know, you can have this great business, but if you can't adapt, if you can't get with the times, then you are going to get left behind and you'll lose all your influence and power. Now, I'm not saying the lessons are right. I have my... Mm -hmm many problems with the capitalist society that we have right now. But the film is showing you that not only do you have to be a great mind, you also have to be able to adapt. And you also keep have to keep your head on the swivel. You know, being a person involved in crime, you don't really get to live peacefully. I mean, Vito Corleone was one of the lucky ones because he was able to build his business at a time when the mob wasn't in big rule. In the, in the big cities. Mm. So he was able to be on the ground floor of that and be able to benefit off of that and enjoy the spoils without having to really shed much bloodshed. But now he is at the end of his time. And his son, Michael Corleone, is going to be the guy who has to deal with this new era of ruthless businessship. And we see over in the sequels that Michael becomes, in the sense, a product of the times. He becomes a guy that is all about making profit and doing it at any cost. Even coming from the military, he was almost trained into it to become more ruthless as a businessman. Another reflection of how America shapes people, perhaps how they draw them uh, from one life to the next. And as you say, yeah, there's a great like a generational movement there where our father's generation might have earned money differently. And I think we can feel that no matter what time in America we live in, uh, the way that wealth accumulates in a family is well maybe it doesn't now it uh you know uh that's how every generation might feel though that uh maybe it doesn't through any clean means in their own generation uh there is always a shift every time that uh, uh power shifts and generations move forward and it, it covers that so neatly and and as you say of that time it's what what is building this character is what's happening Yeah, there, um, there is a scene, there is also the element of this film that, you know, gets, a, I'm sure probably gets a lot of credit, but, you know, the depiction of violence mm. in the film doesn't feel anything that's worth, that is worth, you know, rewinding back and, you know, enjoying it. The violence film is really brutal and it feels very sudden and direct, 
you know, it, it, you're not going to get any cool action sequences of dudes like diving over cars or guys <laughs> yeah. that are doing slow motion or anything or guys yeah. that are just looking cool while doing it. No, the violence in this film serves a purpose. It serves a purpose of showing just how brutal the criminal life is. And it also shows you that one minute you could be here and the next you could be gone just like that. Not even based off of anything you're doing, but based off because of what other people see you as. They either see you as an asset or they see you as a problem. And if they see you as an asset, you could become exploited and you could become used for other gains. But if they see you as a problem, you can immediately be taken out. And not only will you be taken out, you could be taken out by the people who you thought were your friends. You, you don't know? have power over that either. I mean, it's just where you sit in that continuum, right? It's just what part are you playing? What cog are you in that machine of money there? Yes. Uh, you know, it feels like that this film is also showing you that in society, it's not really about, you know, how good-hearted you can be be about your your personal traits your moral beliefs you know your sense of responsibility is really about can you make this person money or can you give this person more power and if you can do one of those things then you have a use for us and if you don't then well you can just stay off to the sides and we won't we want nothing to do with you but you can't become a part of our world you have to stay on the outside it's so baked into the themes there everything we talk about it it has so many sides to it and so much depth around it um, the way people have to uh, survive in that world is insane because it, as you say, it's not up to them anymore. Um, their association with the family almost becomes, you know, uh, you have to be at a certain level of desperation to accept that for yourself. Yeah. And in a sense, you know, with the family, you know, you don't get really get that sense of desperation because you see that they are enjoying the spoils of having that the great American life. So you you if you were just an observer from the outside, not knowing exactly what the Corleone family business does, then you would think, wow, they're they're making it pretty good. They have no worries. But it's the clear opposite of that. When you get into the innermost details of their life, you can see that Vito Corleone is worried about his legacy carrying on to the future generations. You can see somebody like Michael who knows that he doesn't want to become part of his life, but he might have to in order to save his family. You can see somebody like Sonny who is a guy that wants to be the leader of the family, but he's not trusted by others because of his temperament. You can see a, a guy like Fredo who wants to be a part of the family, but he's not He's not trusted. No one sees him as a real threat or a real guy who can do who, who could be a mover and a shaker because he's so he is so easily swayed. And mm. also he, he can be easily swayed against his own family. I mean, you see in the in the scene where Michael goes to Las Vegas and Fredo and he and Michael's trying to negotiate with Mo Green and Fredo talks against the family. And Michael tells him, Don't you ever talk against the family? And you can see that Fredo is just not that guy. He's he's a little bit soft, is what they would say. Mm. And, and you can see that even with all of the money in the world, there are still problems that you have to deal with on a daily basis that, you know, even normal people like us deal with. You know, there's, so there's a sense of relatability that you can get from watching this family as well. Yeah, I think it, as we said, it, it does cover generational uh, traumas and, and advancement and uh, systems of wealth and inequality, equality, um, everything about America. The whole American story is uh, somehow captured in here. It is like our the great Gatsby of movies in some sense. It is the great American dream, the great American story, the, the best American story ever told, as they say. 
um it's like the great American novel put into a movie. I mean, I don't think the novel was that I, I, I haven't read it. I haven't read the Mary of the novel, but I don't get the impression that it is the same caliber of work. I think it almost had to be adapted by uh, someone of uh, Coppola's vision. And I think that combination makes it what's so powerful. Have you read the book? I actually have read the book. The book okay. The book is very good, but you are right. Like, if you take that book on its on its face value, it does not have the impact that the film does. Like, I think, honestly, this, this is probably a case in which the film is a much better version of the story than the book. Okay. You know, there's only so much you can get by imagining things, by reading them off the page. But when you visualize it, you're able to see it. I think the book does a great job of bringing more character and, a, and more liveliness to the uh, events in the book. This is that great generation of doing that where Jaws, of course, is like taken from like a beach novel, like a, a read that you just like read by the beachside. It's it's a nothing book. It's like a, a very smarmy book and kind of a gross book. And uh, this generation kind of took those books and made like very powerful literature in the movies. They They understood how to expand those stories how to still be literary on the screen and how to elevate materials. Um, think of like, even like Exorcist or something like there, all these books just became highly powered and highly charged once they hit the screen. Um, it was almost like a shift away from like American letters. Like uh, The great American novels seem to be like the next, the last thing, like this uh, directorial intent and getting away from a studio system somehow makes the director, the author now. And it's almost mm -hmm. like they get to tell their story. Um, as far as like Coppola's filmography goes, it, it still stands like as this trilogy as being like the defining aspect. Uh, you could go with Apocalypse Now or The Conversation, but um, I think you go with The Godfather as being the one. Yeah, I mean, Apocalypse Now is close. It's close yeah, it is. to take. It's, it's close In to take another it off. Reading. That, yeah. It, it, which perspective are you looking at? You could find it either way, right? Um, yes. How do you? Yeah, I, yeah. I would think that the Godfather stands as the ultimate, the ultimate piece of art for any director. Um, you know, its lineage and its status in American culture has been earned. You know, this isn't a thing that it was bestowed with or that people wanted to force it down your throat. It just made it obvious that you know this is this is now, and everything else after this is going to be influenced because of what. This is done. And, you know, the testament can be, like you said earlier, it can be taken from how it's affected our pop culture, how I'm going to make him offer he can't refuse, how everybody still says that, sure. you know, how people still continuously watch, rewatch this film every year. I mean, that speaks to its, its power. It, it, it earned it, definitely. There seems to be that admitted influence. We were talking about Goodfellas and The Sopranos. In The Sopranos, they watched. The Godfather. They reference it all the time. These are characters uh, within like a modern mob uh, as it's moved into, you know, the post whatever the drug system was. And they're just, uh, you know, um, funneling money into false businesses now. And they're, you know, uh, it's not about oil or drug business so much anymore. It's uh, uh, almost getting one over on like the systems at power and that generational wealth that they can barely hold on to anymore. But they're they're still quoting these characters like they live in worlds where this movie exists. Yeah, it, and you know there's there's aspects 
Curse of the Godfather, the way that it's staged as far as following not just Tony Soprano, but it follows his family. I mean, I think all that can be gathered from the Godfather itself. Uh, you know, digging deep into the psychological aspect, I think that that is a place where the Godfather maybe was limited because of it being a film. And Soprano yeah. was a TV show, so it was able to dig deeper into that. But the genesis of that comes straight from the Godfather. Mm. So it's all about, you know, inspiring the spark in someone's mind rather than just being the guy who does everything. If you can inspire the spark in another person's mind and they can make something great out of it, then that says more about you than that great piece of art. I feel like there haven't been very many influential mob and mafia films post-Sopranos. I think that uh, genre has kind of said what it's needed to say for the last generation. At least for now. I was thinking mm -hmm. about Succession. I don't know if you've seen the HBO show, Succession. Um, I've tried to watch it a couple okay. of times. Might not be the right time for me to get into it, but sure. I'm trying. Yeah. I think it does a lot, a lot of the same things, if it could uh, draw the analogy out to media being a modern mob and mafia. But of course, that uh, has less to say, I think, just about immigration and... and uh, that kind of aspirational wealth of America because they're already there because they are the white people who've profited off their standing already that they don't need that mm -hmm. element. So I think that maybe is the closest story I've seen this year of, uh, uh, I guess you haven't watched it. I don't know how much I should say anymore. <laughs> yeah. Don't spoil it for okay. me. I'm going to get to it sure. eventually. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I mean, it's in the title succession. It's, it's about training the family and, and who's going to take over and what ruthlessness and power it takes uh, to get into that money and about like the Murdochs, which is um, if you want to call Fox news, <laughs> the modern mob in a way, I guess that site is the mob um, using violence and money and power for their own ends and illegal activities. Uh, it just happens to be the politicians in front of our face. Now <laughs> it's not, um, it's not hidden behind closed doors anymore. The, the dealings happen in the daylight uh, in the Oval Office or, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's, there's no distance anymore. Maybe we're always seeing the Godfather in real life. Yeah. And I, I think the reason why, you know, we haven't seen a story like the Godfather being brought to the screen anymore is because who's going to see him in the theaters? You know, yeah. I, I think back in the day, you know, the Godfather was such a cultural phenomenon that people were still coming in weeks after and still going and still having and still wanting to see this film, not just once, but multiple times. But now in this days, we live in, a, in an age where like we, we want microwave content. We want mm. content that we can immediately digest right then and right there. And if it takes too long to grab us in, then we're ready to move on to the next one. So there's not patience for a film like this anymore. You know, yeah. I mean, a recent example would probably be Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, great film. Uh, I really enjoyed it. But when it came down to the box office, it got beat. It, it got beat astronomically by a film like Five Nights at Freddy's, which mm. is, I think, lesser in quality. But Sure. It speaks it, it speaks to to it to the attention span and it speaks to the aspect that studios are not willing to invest in films like this because they don't bring in the big bus. They're not blockbusters, they're not franchises, mm -hmm. you know, and that that um loss of original storytelling is is hurting the medium, honestly, in my opinion. It's fascinating too, because like when this was coming out, we were only beginning to identify what a blockbuster was. Like it didn't, it wasn't competing against Star Wars because it didn't exist yet, right? Like um, 
it didn't have Marvel because there was no such thing as like a, a franchise sci-fi property to compete with at the at the box office. Like films would stay in the box office for six, seven months. Now we have much more films, but they go quickly. Um and Killers of the Flower Moon, you know, internationally it's made, you know, mm-hmm. eighty million on a two hundred million dollar budget. It's a, it's a much more expensive film, but when I watch The Godfather I always feel like it. I, I don't know how to describe how it feels like the most expensive, rich film I've ever seen, because clearly it's not. But but it has that luxury to it. It feels like a, it feels like a Lexus. You know, it feels like I'm a. It feels empowering. Like a, you're you're um, interacting with something that's uh, of money, more money than other movies are. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really about, you know, it's about quality over quantity. You know, you can make you can make so many films dealing with the same subject matter, but there's the cream of the crowd will always rise to the top. And if it does rise to the top, it's always going to have a longstanding place in history. And Godfather is exactly that film. And Francis Ford Coppola now, um, I mean, his daughters put out a film this week. I mean, the, the family is still, you know, in cinemas uh uh priscilla is out in theaters right now mm. so um that influence as well that um familial generational influence has very much been passed down uh but he'll also be putting out megalopolis with a uh, uh, adam driver in it so uh within the next few years you know that's the making a film like that now i think it i think it takes many more years to make it um i'm curious how that if that ever happens even uh, yeah. what will happen because he says he's you know now he has to front all his money on it that's another thing to make a movie like that he's putting you know hundreds of millions of his own like uh money from his vineyards and wine reserves into this uh into this one thing and, and i uh you know just driving around yesterday i i heard av- advertisements for coppola's winery you know like he is still in our world it's it's still all around us um so I, I feel like his influence is so outsized because uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is one of my favorite uh, movies of the year. I guess I like those uh, new Hollywood guys, but it also got me thinking about how Scorsese was the only one who survived with a career. Um, most of them didn't continue after the 80s, and uh, Scorsese even had his rocky periods, but was the only one who didn't seem to go away. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't figured out why. But uh, I mean, we could say it's because of Scorsese films, but then again, Scorsese had the opportunity to make these films. And I'm thinking maybe these other guys maybe just didn't have what Scorsese have, not as far as talent, but as far as studio backing, you know, mm-hmm. and people who are willing to come out to see these films. So th- there's a lot of variables. I mean, I mean, films like this get made. You know, they they these directors probably still worked, but it wasn't promoted like it was a big mm. thing, like a Scorsese film. A Scorsese, a Scorsese film even now still feels like an event. And these other guys, they kind of got pushed to the back burner. And it was like, yeah, you know, you can make your film, but the studio's not really going to be fully backing it, you know. What was that? Well, Coppola also like took projects that Scorsese would never take, like a Scorsese, of course, had like very artful films to begin with. <laughs> like, uh, um, he was making almost uh, John Cassavetes style films, but then he went and made a Roger Corman movie, and Cassavetes pulled him aside. He's like, "Don't make that bullshit. You're wasting your time." 
you wasted mm-hmm. a year of your life making a movie people won't watch but you know even up to um up to like the 90s we had like francis ford coppola making like jack with with robin williams right like it's just, mm. i mean that's not a serious movie i mean it it could be but it, it's not because it's like a a boy that looks like a 40 year old man you know it's like a that's another scorsese didn't make those missteps i think uh, no miscalculations yeah, I think that Scorsese, um, he was a guy that did not fully grow, grow into the studio system. He was a director who would not let himself become a part of the studio system. And I feel that those other directors, they were like, well, OK, you know, I'm making these films. But now I want to make a film that everybody can love. That's yeah. mainstream, as you can say. And when you do something like that, then you have to sacrifice your creative control. You have to sacrifice maybe some things that you want to do. And then you get products that you know yes my name is at the end of it but it doesn't feel like a film that's made from my ilk and the fans can see that even the critics can see it (laughs) and it was about like who backed who it was the new hollywood system supporting itself it was the actors and uh um, directors being prominent like uh, george lucas coming from american graffiti and really running for coppola to to front this movie to helm this movie he, it is because of like Lucas that we had American Zoetrope, which was like this tribe that just allowed them to work outside the system until it no longer worked. Um, and it, uh, you know, that that had a great run, like uh, from like THX all the way to like the nineties. It was, uh, um, I think that might be the last one. Uh, I think uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula might be the last one where I feel like Coppola's intent and authorship. I think. Uh, it might have ended there for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, like uh, American Zotrope even went on to like uh, Sofia Coppola's movies. Like there is a lasting legacy and a continuation here of uh, uh, directors working outside systems. And we get movies like Elvis from within the system last year. But then we get Sofia Coppola's Priscilla this year. You know, there's still these directors and different people making movies now that uh, can be interesting and could still be against the system system and market mm-hmm. yeah uh, most definitely you know i'm always going to champion those directors and artists that can that are still able to do things that are within their vision and you know are trying to make something not caring about you know the status or the money or even the studios wanting to come behind them and kiss their butt you know it's all about the art at the end of the day and films like the godfather just remind me that you know there is still art out there there's art out there you just have to be willing to look you have to be willing to open up your mind and you have to be willing to experience new things you know there are more than just uh more than just a superhero flying across the world to save the world again or another half-baked comedy you know that has jokes that won't age well so <laughs> right i mean you say like yeah all movies have something to tell us and maybe these superhero movies have these moral lessons in them but they're also part of like a military industrial complex you know mm-hmm. like they're they are not outside the system of, of america like they're not they can't push against the system because they're such a part of it um mm-hmm. that we still have to look outside and we have to look for diverse filmmakers and people with the that haven't had the ability to make their godfather yet and we have to allow them to um so that's what i'm excited about about a future of movies is a the rising accessibility of directors and people getting to make their own godfather i hope that's a reality more than it has been.
Me too. I mean, it's it's not looking too promising, you yep. know, with the with the whole introduction of AI and with streaming and everything and whatnot. It's looking very dim. But you know, if one thing is to have is hope. You know, you just gotta have hope. <laughs> you see, the directors just made their deal outright. They didn't make any protections for themselves. I'm very worried about the directors the next five years. Uh, <laughs> I am too. A- the writers yeah. and the actors had like four or five months now of runarounds where they're like, uh, we need to protect ourselves against AI. Directors didn't. Yeah, I think it's coming down to a point where certain people are thinking like, where's my next check going to come? You know, mm. I still have bills to pay. You know, everything is rising up in costs. Inflation's kicking my butt, you know. So I can see, I can understand why directors would probably want to cave in. But as an artist, it, it, it feels like such a disservice. And it feels like you're once again letting the studios just kind of control everything. And now you are under the thumb of the studios now. Now you have to kind of, now they have more of the bargaining power than it, it used to be. Yeah. I mean, just when you thought you're out, they pull you back in and they, they bring you back into this uh, <laughs> this ugly studio system. I, I know that's Godfather 3, but it's also so fun to quote. <laughs> It is. <laughs> I hope you will come back. I, I do want to do Godfather Two again. Um, I, I I mean, I'd like you to come back for it, and maybe three. I don't. I don't know about three. Uh, I watched the original cut somewhat recently and wasn't a huge fan, but I I'd be willing to talk about it. Um, oh, I'll ch- I'll change your mind about three. Okay, I think three I, is. I'm awesome. open to that. I think that would I'll be great because I haven't watched Coda, and uh, I'd like the ob- opportunity to have my mind changed about it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's let's plan for more of these because this was a blast. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, buddy. And you can find uh, your work at Blackner Magic on Letterbox. Thank you so much, Bless. Thank you, Calvin. Conversations and I post them online for entertainment. It's nice to know at least you listen to the show because it's quite the possibility that nobody is listening to me in this modern world. Things have changed, everybody's entertaining. Who's being entertained?